All right, so I'm, I'm just curious. Can, can we get sort of a house roll call about where people are from? I'm going to assume that since you're potted out, that this means you're all together. Is that right? <laughs> so this pod, where are you guys from? USA Spectrum. What? Nice. That's a long drive, y'all. Thanks for coming. <laughs> In the back? We're from here. Random UA students. Yay, random UA students. Yay. <laughs> I enjoy that. This section? Troy, what's up, Troy? Anybody else? Oh, wow, all right. Literally everyone from Troy is here today, y'all. <laughs> Their campus is closed. Cause... So my name is Josh Burford. Um, I don't ever know how to do this part. Is it too? This is better. I don't want to be yelling at you. Um, I'm a queer historian and archivist. Um, I did my training in queer history here at the University of Alabama in our American Studies program. Um, I've been teaching queer history since 2006, uh, lots of different places, but currently at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. I'm excited to say, by the way, that my new course just got approved for next year, which is going to be a service learning course that we're going to do in the spring, which I'm calling Queers in Space. Um, and no, it's not about that one lesbian that was in the space program in NASA. We're actually going to be doing an entire semester on intentionally created queer communities. And so I'm taking my students for a week to San Francisco to study and work at the LGBT Historical Society, which is the largest archive in the country. Yeah, you know, if you want to transfer, we have paperwork. I brought that with me. Your schools are terrible. My school's amazing. So, um, so normally I don't write out the things that I'm talking about, but there are some things in particular that I wanted to say since I had your attention today, so that's why these things are here. I started with this quote, history is a weapon. It was a quote from the Manifesto of Queer Nation, which was one of the most radical LGBT groups that we had in the country. The thing to keep in mind about our history is that less than 3% of LGBTQ identified people in this country, this is high school and college students, get access to queer history. There are so few people teaching specifically queer historical classes that the numbers are staggering. So in the South, there are actually only seven of us in the entire South doing LGBT history as a full-time studied profession. And so that's a problem. Um, when I came out in the early 90s, a long time ago, um, before some of you were born, before Twitter, certainly, they, the idea that I could have my own history was something I never imagined. And so I knew that there were places that had gay people in it, and I should go to those places, but none of those places were Troy or Anniston, Alabama or Birmingham, the places I grew up, right? We have some Anniston people in the house? Nice, what up? Literally, it was just us and my uncle. So now that we're all gone, I don't know what the hell they're doing up there in Anniston. So, so I thought, since I had your attention for a bit today, that we would do two things. We would tell some stories, because that's what we do in the South, we tell stories. I'm going to tell you the story of a project that I just finished that, if it works the way that I think, is, will be continuing for the next three years to capture, preserve, and store LGBT history across the Southeast. Um, and then I'm going to tell you another story about what it means to be queer in the South, because we've been working under an idea that is incorrect about who we are. And so I thought, if I have you today, then let's talk about how the South, especially the, the queer South, is a different place than you imagined. So, all right, that's my setup. Ready? We're all good? Okay. Back in 2009, at a fundraiser with the Pink Box Burlesque, which is my friend Sophie Jones here in the front, I did a talk um, or a performance piece. I guess you'd have to call it a performance piece because I took my clothes off while I was doing it. My students that semester were very excited. I don't know why. That was a terrifying moment for all of us. Um, 
called The State of the Gay Union. Uh, in it, I talk about what it means for us to tell our stories in the places where we live. A line from that piece went, we're here, we're queer, and we live right around the corner from here. <laughs> and part of what resonated with people in that moment was the idea that there was a way of feeling pride not just in our orientations and identities as queer folk, but also as queer people living, working, and not just surviving in the South. For those of us fortunate enough to have grown up both queer and Southern, we understand very early on the mixed looks of sadness and regret that we see in the eyes of gay people from other parts of the U.S. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? When they say, where are you from? You say Alabama, and they go, aw. They give you that head tilt. It's like, so sad, right? As if somehow we have been abandoned here um, by our queer ancestors to live in oppression um, until we got sense enough or money enough to escape. I hate this idea. I hate it. The idea that I didn't have a history of my own, but rather I should be content with learning the stories of far-off places and struggle to figure out how I can make those stories about me. The queer immigration from the South happened because people were looking for, quote, better ways of life. Um, how eerily similar this seems, by the way, to the classist, sexist notions of things like it gets better, as if somehow leaving is a solution, somehow we can all leave, as if somehow we want to leave. Um, yeah, right, it sucks. When we left our homes for New York and San Francisco or Chicago, we learned that we couldn't actually leave the South behind us and blend. So I started the study of our history with the hopes of learning how to uncover my Southern queer identity, what it looked like and where it had come from. This desire to explore my identity shaped me in ways I never could have imagined and changed everything about my life, the way that I teach, who I am as an individual, what it means for me to claim identity as queer and Southern. And that was a big deal for me. So let me take you back for a moment to 2013, I got asked a question. And that question was, would it be possible to, to capture Charlotte's queer history? This is a picture of the first issue of Q Notes, which is the local LGBT newspaper, which has been in publication in Charlotte since 1970. And the question was, if we give you space in a museum, um, could you tell us our history? At this point, I had been working on an LGBT archive project that was only, at this point, three months old. So the answer to this question was no. I can't actually do that. I have one box. And it's nice, and it's full of interesting things, but no. Well, if we give you a year, can you do it? And so what we did was we started an intensive study of what Charlotte's queer past looked like. What we uncovered in that was something that we could never have imagined. Charlotte's LGBT history going all the way back to 1941. Um, also, just within the last couple of weeks, finding some history potentially from the turn of the century. And so that was history that no one thought was even a, a real thing, not just something that we can actually get. So what I want to do is we did a small oral history project where I went in and I asked this, in, this amazing group of 20 people, intergenerational, queer, people of color, trans-identified folk, and we asked them a question. We asked them, why is it important for us to have our history? And so I'm going to play a little clip for you um, from one of our participants, Micah Johnson. Oh. going through the world. Technology. It's very important that we collect our history um, so that young folk who are going through the world know that this is not the first time, that they're not in isolation. Um, because it seems as though when you first come out and when you first are encountering like what it means to come out to your parents, what it means to come out in schools, that you are the first person and only person in the existence of the world that has gone through this, right? And so to be connected to 
the history of the community and know that you are not the first person walking in these footsteps um, it means so much towards starting at that point in our history, right? So you're not reinventing the wheel, that you're kind of picking up the torch for all of these folks that have been there before. Um, to know that you know our history is in the history of the world through all of these points, it just has been erased. It hasn't been documented. It hasn't been put in there to be, to be looked at and examined. Um, it's so very important so that we don't keep restarting, right? So we're able to, to have some forward momentum. Um, and particularly for folks here in the South, to know that there is history and that there have been pe people here that have been doing this work for, for decades, right? And so that you don't have to necessarily escape to New York to find gay people, or you don't have to escape to Chicago to find gay people. That there are folks right here in the South that have been here, and to highlight them and to show them in, that they've been living healthy, successful lives, pushing against the systems of oppression. So, this is what happened. An exhibit that we curated, I say we in the royal sense, um, called Publicly Identified, Coming Out Activists in the Queen City. It was in the Levine Museum of the New South for seven months. Um, and what we found out just recently when the numbers got crunched, that over 14,000 people saw the exhibit. We had people from almost every state. Um, over 1,500 of those people were high school and college students who got a chance to walk in and see what Southern queer history looked like. Um, I'm particularly proud of what happened, not the least of which is this was hanging in front of the museum in the middle of downtown Charlotte for seven months. Um, and that we did it correctly. That when you looked at the timeline I curated, which started in 1941 and went to 2014, that it was the history of trans-identified people and people of color and working class people. That it wasn't a history that prioritized one identity. And the fact that we put the cue proudly in purple caused a lot of stir. Um, it was a great kind of stir, that kind of stir, you know, that sort of bookend stir, right, where you have straight folks who walk up and go, that's a, that, we can say that? No, no, not you, not you, sir. You, you can actually say that. No, not you. Um, we can, so we're good. We got this. Um, and then from older queer-identified people who said, I've been saying this for a really long time. We had a woman when we, well, who walked in the exhibit. We had a... This video that was playing it was from a Charlotte um, television broadcast where they were talking about the homosexual problem. It was from 1965. At that point, to be arrested for sodomy in North Carolina carried a minimum sentence of 10 years in prison. And so you literally walk into the gallery and you hear this man go, the homosexual problem is immense in Charlotte, especially in our public parks. And it made me laugh every time I watched that. But this woman who had been a lesbian activist in Charlotte for almost 40 years leaves that exhibit, goes home, and calls me and says, after I got finished crying for an hour after seeing your exhibit, I realized that the reason I was crying was not because I was scared, but because I never thought I would live long enough to see myself represented in these places. Now, that is intense. It is intense to have that kind of responsibility to give people their history a history that they never imagined would be possible. And so I'm going to give you back some of your history, and we're going to get around this idea that the South has been behind, because we've told this story so often. Oh, well, you know, in the South, we're 15 or 20 years behind. It turns out that's all bullshit. Can I say bullshit? It's all bullshit. <laughs> and so I want to tell you a little bit about what your history looks like, your queer radical history. I'm a radical anti-assimilationist. You should know that ahead of time. I think the assimilation problem in our culture is exactly why we've ended up in this crappy space. Um, and the reason that our history is whitewashed in about a thousand ways, and all of the ways, 
And so I'm going to try to undo some of that history. So are we ready? We're going to take a little trip together. So this is what the South is like for us as we imagine it is, right? That we have self-hate and retribution happening in this space. And so that all you learn, the first lesson you learn, and I think this is still true of being queer in the entire United States, the first lesson you learn is self-hate. And then we base everything else we do on that early lesson. And it's a powerful lesson to protect yourself, but it's not a great lesson in the ways in which it has been, in the ways in which the history itself has been rendered invisible. And so it was always about escape. This is what people said to me for years, and you guys have heard me say this, my students who were here before, people would say this as a compliment. I, I mean, you just do such good work. Why are you staying in Alabama? I was like, I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. As if somehow like I was too good for the places that I grew up in. And I, always, I, I, couldn't, imagine, I couldn't imagine why I would want to leave, and, except that was totally acceptable, that I was supposed to be leaving. Um, and so the other problem is, we have been ignored by scholars. Um, John Howard and a few other people have done Southern LGBT history, but for the most part, we're completely ignored. And our archival holdings are almost non-existent. So the collection that we're building in Charlotte is on track to be the largest LGBT collection in the Southeast. We're overtaking Emory and Duke and Chapel Hill. <laughs> Chapel Hill. <laughs> Sorry. When you, when, you, when you go to UN, work at UNC Charlotte, no one likes Chapel Hill. They're from the douchebags. But um, so anyway, long story short, what we've discovered now are pieces of our history that were there. They were in plain sight. It's just that no one had bothered to, to collect it. So when I go into people's homes and ask them for their stuff, and can I tell you, I have been in beautiful, multi-million dollar homes, rich, white, white cis, gay folks who are just delighted to give me their crap in these beautifully, like, scented boxes. Like, I went to this, I'm not kidding you. I went to this house, and this man hands me a box as if it had been perfumed. And I was like, thank you. Um, I've also been in really disgusting crawl spaces. I was actually under someone's house digging through their basement to get all of their stuff. And when I got out, I was putting my stuff in the car. And this woman, who was very sweet, reaches over and takes a bug out of my hair. And she's just like, and I was like, thank you. But in the moment of doing that, what we've done is we've uncovered people that we couldn't imagine have existed. I picked two just to give you an example. The first is Polly Murray. Are you guys familiar with Polly Murray? Does anybody know who she is? Polly Murray is amazing. She was, among other things, the first person to sue to desegregate the college system in North Carolina. She was a gender-fluid woman of color who was also a minister. She was living at the crossroads of multiracial identity as well as fluid gender identity. She became the first African-American Episcopal bishop. She was friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. She's also from Durham, North Carolina. She was born, by the way, and christened in the church that she goes back, by the way, when she, when she gets her degree, she eventually gets her advanced degree, in the church that her great-great-grandmother had been sold into slavery in. And she goes back as part of a reclamation project to undo the damage of the physical space. And this is an amazing human being that no one knows anything about. Wilmer Brodnax, who was called Little Axe, was one of the most famous gospel singers in the history of gospel music in the 1950s and 60s. Willie was also trans-identified and had went through his entire life as an African-American trans gospel singer. He, at one point, was one of the highest-paid gospel singers in the Southeast when he lived in Memphis. This is a picture of him with his troupe. I really like that picture a lot. Um, and then on his deathbed um, says to his family, tell people who I was. Tell people my name. Tell them how I became this person. 
Anyone ever heard of Little Axe, Willie Broadnax? No. Oh, good. Nice. We got the one little, little hand up there. An amazing history. An amazing history that only just recently is now being put into museums in Memphis, which is exciting. But all this stuff is completely absent. These are the stories I wish I had learned in school, taking Alabama history. Did you guys grow up and take Alabama history? What a crap class that was. I mean, it's learning all the counties. That was helpful, right? <laughs> this is what I wanted to know when I was a young queer fledgling sitting in the back of the classroom, scared to death that someone was going to see me for who I actually was. So this is what we have now. The, there was a southern migration back into the south between 1985 and 1995. Um, the southerners who came back, who were charlatans, and by the way, finding a native charlatan is like finding a unicorn at the end of a rainbow with a pot of gold up its ass, because there are not very many of them. But the founder of our youth, our queer youth outreach project, she was at Stonewall. And she left and went to New York and was a part of the Stonewall riots. Um, Bob Barrett, who was the founder of our very first radical political action organization, had lived in San Francisco, started the very first AIDS outreach program with a group of nurses from L.A., and then brings that back to Charlotte in the 1990s. He also wrote the very first book about gay parenting, by the way, which is um, in 1985. So this is what's happening now. And what happened in that moment, post-1970, was the creation of queer publications all over the South and the formation of radical liberationist groups. And so this is what we're going to talk about. I'm going to send you all this report. Um, it came out last year. We have the highest percentage of LGBT people per population in the entire country. In the entire country. I like these three folk, by the way, down here in all the southern states. Um, we also have the least amount of money being spent on LGBT activism nationally in the country. So think about what it means for us to not have just internalized this narrative that we don't belong in this space, but that narrative is actually being reflected nationally. So the money that we are giving, Charlotte is so proud of its stupid HRC gala. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the HRC, but really not a big fan. But their HRC gala raises, uh, raises half a million dollars every year. Do you know how much of that is spent in Charlotte? None. Not one penny is spent in Charlotte. This is the problem that we're facing, not just personally, but also nationally. So, let's talk about our radical queer past for a minute. This is my favorite thing in the world to talk about. So, the Gay Liberation Front was the first group, the first radical group that was made up of men, of women, of people of color, of trans-identified people right after Stonewall. The Gay Liberation Front didn't last a really, really long time, mostly because it had no model. They did the best that they could. They fought a lot, but they got a lot of shit done. But the first Gay Liberation Front chapter in Charlotte was in 1971. This is one year after the first anniversary of Stonewall. One year. This is not 20 years later. Bob Bland and his friends Charles and Brad came back to Charlotte and started this chapter of the Gay Liberation Front. And in the very short time that they were around for two years, between 1971 and 1973, they were able to do so much amazing radical stuff, not the least of which was forming the very first group that led to the creation of the Community Center of Charlotte. They also started and helped write the Charlotte Free Press, which was a huge deal in the Southeast. The Georgia Liberation Front chapter in 71 organizes the very first gay pride parade in Atlanta in 1972. 1972. It is the tiniest little pride you've ever seen. It was like this many people. <laughs> The entire Georgia First Gay Pride Parade was the front two rows. And those queers put on some seriously amazing gear and walked down Peachtree Street in the middle of Atlanta in 1972. Not afraid of nothing. That's something really interesting to know. The thing I like about the Gay Liberation Front is that they were subtle, right? Really, really subtle folk. Now, can you imagine wearing this t-shirt, right? Today. But wearing this in 1972, 
right, in Atlanta, marching down the street. It's amazing. Oh, this is just, this is a tip of the iceberg. You just wait. You can't say nothing yet. <laughs> Trust me. The Lesbian Avengers were also an amazing group. The thing about Lesbian Avengers chapters, <laughs> I should always wait and let the slide just sort of like, like do its filthy business, right? Every Lesbian Avengers chapter was a local chapter. Lesbian Avengers was not a national organization. Their goal was the empowerment of lesbian women in all kinds of fronts, education, workplace discrimination, healthcare. Oh, hey, Lauren. Workplace discrimination, healthcare. And because every single chapter was local, they didn't have to rely on national organizations to give them a purpose. They organized in the cities where they were around local issues. And so it gave them both a sense of connectivity, but also a sense of the individuality of that space. So the chapter that is in New Orleans, for instance, was really, really focused on workers' rights. And so they were in making sure that lesbian women were being paid the same as men in all kinds of different professions. The chapter in Charlotte, this is their brochure here, Snatch the power, by the way. Aces. Aces, right. The Lesbian Avengers chapter in Charlotte was focused on women's education. And they started, the, they started fighting for the inclusion of women's history in high schools in Charlotte. Um, this group was so much fun. The surviving members of the original Lesbian Avengers chapter, they all, I swear I'm not making this up, they all moved to Asheville together. So now they're all living like in the woods, just building shit. Like, literally, that's what they do. I actually got to go a chance and visit them, and they're this amazing group of women who got this, this work done in such a powerful way. This was actually part of the exhibit, and so it was hanging, like, right in the middle, and it's amazing to watch people go, oh, there's a, that was here? And I was like, yeah, that was here. And every one of their demonstrations was successful because they were so visible, and because they pushed and pushed and pushed. Later, the Lesbian Avengers chapter in Little Rock actually focused almost exclusively on the rights of trans-identified women in the, in the last part of the 20th century because that population was so under duress everywhere they went. And so it was amazing that they each took on the, sort of the, the tenor of who they were and where they were from. So the Atlanta Lesbian Feminist Alliance, and some of you from UA have heard me talk about them before, Alpha was so amazing. They were amazing for a couple of reasons. One, they went into Atlanta, and the first thing that they saw that was a problem was that lesbian women who got outed in their, when their jobs, they were losing their children, they were living on the streets. And the, so the first thing that Alpha did was raise enough money to buy a house. And so they opened this Alpha house, and, and it's actually it's, it's set to be on the National Registry of Historic Queer Places, by the way. It's on the short list for the southern spaces. But the Alpha house became a library. It became a place where women could go and learn how to do trades. These women who had been stay-at-home moms who had gotten thrown out when they came out of the closet learned different kinds of work so they could go out and then support each other. Alpha also started one of the very first newsletters, specifically for women in the Southeast, that became this large newspaper that was passed all over to women all over the Southeast. The Alpha chapter was so loud and so vocal that at one point they, were, they had such a voting block majority in their district that the, the district council where they lived in Atlanta had more lesbian-identified women on it than in any point in Georgia's history. And so they were putting their bodies behind the vote when they were going places. Alpha also helped to open Charis Books, which we're going to look at a picture of in a second. Charis Books actually became the centerpiece for what is now what we consider the gayest parts of Atlanta. And I know that's, that's a lot of places, but, but you know, Atlanta, right? 
So, but Piedmont Park area in Atlanta, where they opened up their, their very first house and their very first center, becomes the centerpiece of what it means to organize radically. These women were vicious, and the best kind of vicious. That kind of vicious that nothing got in the way of what they were going to accomplish for their community. Their archives actually are one of the best kept. If you ever want to see them, they're at Emory University. You can actually go and look. I actually had a chance to go and spend some time with their archivists. And their collections are so phenomenal, mostly because they kept everything. I mean, literally everything. In the 1970s, when they started, their number one goal was the opening up of women's centers all throughout the Southeast. And so they were personally responsible for the formation of women's centers in Charlotte, in Knoxville, Tennessee, as well as in Georgia. These became shelters where women could get access to health care, where women could escape abuse in relationships. And so their commitment to the freedom for lesbian women, but women in general, or anyone who identifies as female later as they become more nuanced in their history, becomes so important for people surviving in the South and being the people that they needed to be in those spaces. I love Queer Nation. They're my fave. I wish that they were still a thing. Um, this is from their manifesto. Being queer is not about a right to privacy. It's about the freedom to be public, to just be who we are. Being queer means leading a different sort of life. It's not about the mainstream, profit margins, patriotism, patriarchy, or being assimilated. It's about being at the margins and defining ourselves. Queer Nation was so important to us being able to be in this space together because they were the very first group to take the anti-assimilationist idea and turn it into a movement that happened all over the South. Queer Nation chapters, especially the ones in Houston, I'm gonna show you a picture of them in a second, were so radically vocal that they were able to get so much accomplished. And history as a weapon is so important because what happens every single time a community assimilates either on purpose or against their will is that our history is destroyed intentionally. Because as the quote said from earlier, if you don't know what has happened, you're always starting from zero. Nobody always wants to start from zero. But if people have done this in your history, so can you. And Queer Nation understood what it meant to be so vocal that when you walk into a space and said, I'm queer, everyone in that space was supposed to go, yikes. Those gays just called themselves queer, and they said, we're not gay, we're queer, and this is why. Because we have the right to be exactly these people in exactly these spaces. And I think that's something that we've forgotten. These are from Queer Nation Houston. Again, think about what this means. Think about what it means to put this on a poster and to put this outside of where you're working, and on street corners, and in bookstores. This is a very different kind of what gay and lesbian looks like for us in the 21st century. Where for me, when I look around, what I see is not so different than straight people. And really, when you get right down to it, we are a different sort of community. And the right to have access to that identity is what's so important and what's missing from our dialogue. Is that we don't have to assimilate to be acceptable. In fact, some of us are not very acceptable when it comes right down to it. I, would, uh, I got talked out of this tattoo, Sabra. <laughs> that's the one I wanted. We had this amazing... <laughs> so, yeah. It would just look good right here, right? I'm so shouldery. So we had um, some hate mail that we published for the, for the, new, for the uh, archive that Bob Baird had kept. He kept every piece of hate mail he ever got. It's in a folder about this big. Trust me, if you want to come and visit the archives, don't sit and do what I did and read every piece of that hate mail. It's not good for your brain. I had to literally go on a very long walk, and then there might have been some drinking involved in trying to get that stuff out of my head. But in the, on the very first line, it says, Dear Dr. Barrett... And then underneath it, it says, our town does not need any more cock-sucking, comma, cornholing, comma, perverts. Right? I'm telling you, when I get called a cock-sucking pervert in print, 
that's when I'm going to feel like I've made it. Like, I, that's when I want someone to call me that in print so I can have it for the records, right? Also, by the way, we learned that bigots don't know how to spell because underneath that line it says you will find your, what does it say? You'll find your, your punishment later on with what was supposed to say Satan, but they spelled it satin. <laughs> you should be afraid of satin. It's a terrifying fabric. It really is. For generations, our people have been trying to get you to stop wearing satin. I just didn't know that the hate people knew that too. So thanks for that. The fear of satin, I'm telling you, it's deep. It's crucial to how we understand ourselves. Queer Nation chapters in the South. Um, Lexington, Kentucky's Queer Nation chapter has some of the most fun people I know because I had a chance to talk to them. Amazing. Such good stuff. The Nashville chapter and the Atlanta chapters did a lot of stuff, but the chapter in Columbia, South Carolina did the most amazing activism. The most amazing activism. I mean, I'm going to show you a picture of them in a minute. In the 90s, they organized together against Cracker Barrel. You guys were way too young to remember this. By the way, don't eat Cracker Barrel. It's terrible. Anyway, I mean, seriously. Gravy on eggs? God. Southerners, right? But they were firing gay and lesbian identified employees um, all throughout the 90s. That's what they were doing. And so the Queer Nation chapters got together to protest that this was the protest. <laughs> right? Bigots and gravy? That is amazing. This is me, by the way, at the, at the University of South Carolina archives. I'm looking through their stuff, and I'm going, oh, my God. And I pick this thing up. I was like, oh, oh, my God. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Someone enjoy this with me. And I'm, like, pushing it around the room. Like, nobody? Nobody? All right. But it's amazing, right? I, I gave a, a similar talk at the University of South Carolina in October, and when I showed them this, they were like, where did this come from? And I said, the building next door to where we're sitting. But look at this. They plastered this all over the place. And you know what else they did? This right here, which was they put together an activist packet that they gave out to everybody. I mean, look at the things they want to do. A shopper's guide to gay and lesbian South Carolina. That's probably good. Queer nights at straight bars. I love that. Love that. Legal support, right? These are the things that they wanted to do. And this was happening with a group of people who, by the way, the head of Queer Nation South Carolina is now the poet laureate of South Carolina. So just let that sit for like a hot second. That is amazing to me. And the reason we have this stuff in the archives is because he kept it. But the idea of bigots and gravy, y'all just do it. Find something. Find something to protest and put bigots and gravy on. It makes me so happy. If you take nothing else away from today, bigots and gravy, y'all. This is a picture of Charis Books in Atlanta. I mean, come on. Really? Lavender? Seriously? But... Charles Books becomes the home for the dissemination of queer publications. So in the 50s, when we started writing um, one magazine in Southern California, they would ship it to you in this like little tiny, little tiny thing that was all blacked out. And so it would come in the mail. It was all very, it's like how you used to get porn before you had the internet. Not that I would ever do that, but this porn is, you know, it's whatever. But you would get it in the mail and it would be all blacked out. Charles Books stopped that practice, and they would take all the local papers they could get from Tennessee, Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi, bring them into this one space, and then mail them directly to people so that people that were living in rural areas of the southeast could get the same access to information that people got in Atlanta. Like, that's what we keep forgetting is that we're so, so much of us are rural that we have forgotten how to outreach. So we can't always pull those people in. Have you tried to live in Atlanta? Trust me, Atlanta is an unlivable place unless you're making a certain amount of money. And so the idea that these women send this information out to people living in these little tiny little like stoplight Georgia, you know what I mean, this big, that was really, really important for them. So 
There were these amazing queer publications. This is Q Notes. So Q Notes is the local newspaper. This is issue one. Issue one, very first printing. The cover story was Mr. Leather, North Carolina, on the cover. That, isn't that amazing? Like, we just went right at it. This flew off the shelves. I'm sure you can imagine why, right? Actually, only two copies of the original of the paper exist, but this, to me, is so amazing. This is a cover of Creative Loafing from 95. They did a showing of Angels in America in Charlotte, and the city council, which made a bunch of old, straight, white, rich dudes, said that it was promoting homosexuality. Sidebar, it totally was. So they were actually right about that. Um, but the town actually rallied around the support, and Tony Kushner himself wrote a letter to the, the, uh, the, the actors of the play that was read on opening night. Also another geeked out archive moment is me sitting in the office of the, of the Charlotte Arts Guild. And she said, oh, we've got a folder. She hands me a folder and I'm, she says, just take whatever you want. Nobody's looked at that in years. And I pull out a handwritten letter from Tony Kushner. And I was like, that same moment of like, oh, there's nobody here. I don't understand what's happening. Instagram, look at what I found or whatever. So the queer publications are happening everywhere. Pink Trash is actually considered the first queer publication in the South. It was published in North Carolina um, between 66 and 69. Think about what it was like, by the way, to publish a queer newsletter before Stonewall in North Carolina. Pink Trash actually exists fully electronic. You can get it from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It's amazing. I mean, this is not your mom and dad's gay newspaper. It just isn't. It's not like polite ads about marriage equality. It's like, if you'd like to hook up, here are the five bars that happen after six or whatever. And there's this great space at the park, which I have to knock three times on this rock for people to show up. It's, I'm telling you, it's amazing. It just puts everything out for us all to look at. It made me feel so proud. The Atlanta Barb, which was published in 74, was called the Groovy Newspaper Serving Atlanta in the Southeast. It is hilarious. I mean, it's hilarious. It's an old gay hippie who had left New York to move back. He was from rural Georgia, Bill Smith. And he starts this newspaper. And it is like this wonderful sort of mix of like, here's how to make organic granola. Also, here's how to not get syphilis. Also, here's this gay bar. And it's just like part recipe book, part you know, hookup spot. It's like, it's like really, really low-tech grinder, basically, honestly. Like it's just, everyone's like, we're going where? OK, that's at 12. All right, we got to go. The paper said so. The Charlotte Free Press was more newspapery. Um, it was actually, it was, they were trying to go for respectable. Um, it is pretty respectable, I have to say. Um, it got less respectable later. There's a 1976 copy that is in my office because I haven't been able to give it up yet because I love it so much. But I'll, I will eventually, I promise. But there is a two-page fold-out in the center of Charlotte's first gay bathhouse, which was open in Charlotte. I know, amazing, right? It's open in Charlotte from 1974 to 1976. And you open it up, it's this full-page pink, beautiful, come to the bathhouse, Wednesday is free towel night. Like this whole thing. By the way, the bathhouse is now a Kinko's, which makes me really sad. <laughs> but, I know. I mean, Kinko's are pretty gay, too, I guess, but less gay than they have been in the past. But the bottom floor of the building, it, it was been owned by the same people since the 70s. The bottom floor of the building, which is where the baths actually were, had been sealed up and had been unopened since 1976. And I got a chance to see them about a month ago. And it is, you literally want to be in a hazmat suit when you're in that space because you're like, so many things happened in this space. <laughs> but it is pristinely beautiful in that space with these, <laughs> and I don't know how we're going to get them in the archive, but it's the last thing I do. We're going to get them. Are these two columns, or these two columns with these absolutely completely naked dude on one side just kind of doing like this? And then absolutely completely naked woman on the other side, she's doing this. 
and they're gorgeous. And I walked in, I said, I have to have these. And they're attached to the ceiling. I was like, I'll come back. I'm just going to like chisel them out and be like, chuck over my shoulder and be like, like yeah, it's from the bathhouse, y'all. <laughs> right in the middle of downtown Charlotte, too, by the way. It's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous and scary. I did get a tetanus booster after I left. Um, Sinister Wisdom began published, it began its publications in North Carolina. It's actually still um, going. It was the first lesbian women's only art magazine. So you could read poetry, you could read fiction, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Okay, Xenogeny, which I just found out about, for those of my friends who are from, <laughs> my friends from Tennessee are giving me the nod up there. Xenogeny was, was published in 1989, and it was the precursor to the Queer Nation chapters that happened in Nashville. Um, it is bizarrely forward-thinking. Like, if you opened up and read it, it would read, like, 2015. But there are all these ways in which you should, and there's a whole article on why having children is the worst idea for gay people um, since, what is it? The worst idea since the closet. That was the name of the article. It's amazing. Like, they just took it all the way through. It's beautiful. The Alabama Forge, which was published in Alabama from the 1990s until uh, the early 2000s, you actually have a full run of the Alabama Forge here on campus in your archives. It's also really gorgeous. And then the Free Press was published in Tuscaloosa um, in the 2000s. Some of us in this room, including myself, actually had a chance to write for this newspaper. Your archives also have a full run of this newspaper as well. These things were so important to this, the dissemination of information all over the Southeast because they were not hidden, that they were queer papers. That's what they were for. This is the cover of the first issue of the Free Press and the cover of the first issue of Sinister Wisdom. Um, I just love this little hand-drawn, <laughs> this little, is this, I'm assuming a policeman here? Or a flight attendant, perhaps? I don't know. <laughs> what do gay people do for, for careers? I have no idea. But all of these exist in some form. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about queer Alabama. It's, it's good, right? I just bought this t-shirt. You can totally get it online. Um, it's nice. I like the peeled back flag. Like We're behind it going... <laughs> We're here, y'all. Here in queer Alabama. <laughs> Here's what early gay Alabama looked like. Okay, Gay Seed is the worst name for a gay group ever. I don't know why they called it Gay Seed. I don't know why. I'm just going to let this be a thing that it is. Gay Seed was part bookstore, part political organizing group, part hookup spot in Huntsville. Yeah, right. Yeah. It was sort of for gay farmers, I assume. Like, oh, have this gay seed or whatever. Truthfully, what they were thinking, uh, I mean, without the tiniest bit of irony, is that they were planting, right, seeds, right? That is not what anybody thinks of when they read that title. That's not what I think of when I read this title either. But there is an actual, there was a book that was published, uh, it was a gay guide to the, a gay guide to the Southeast that was published in, in San Francisco, and Gay Seed is the only one listed at the time of LGBT groups in Alabama. Um, but it was an amazing little group of folks, and they did such good work together. Gays, with a Z, was the very first LGBT group in, Al in Tuscaloosa in 1978. Oh, see what they did there? Gays. Gays. We don't know much about gays, except that gays was started by two boys who had met while they were at the University of Alabama who were lovers. Um, and you see where that was doomed to fail, right? So, yeah. Never let the group, too, by the present vice president of the early stuff be like people who are dating, because that's always like a little scary. you got to give a group a minute before people can start dating. Um, so it didn't really last all that super long. Uh, there was a group that had the catchy name of Gay and Lesbian Statewide Organization. Yes. Very cleverly done um, in 1980. 
and we're going to talk about them in a minute. And then here at the University of Alabama, our first group was called the Gay Student Union. This was in 1982. Um, this is... Almost nothing is really known about the Gacy group or the gays group in Tuscaloosa because we haven't found their information yet. But these four groups here were the nucleus of what you all get to do now all across the state of Alabama. And so every one of your groups and your spaces owes its allegiance to the early top three groups because that was what they wanted to do. They wanted to start this that you're doing right here. And they did in a lot of places. The Southeastern Conference for Lesbian and Gay Men. This is how we bring everything full circle. This was the first student LGBT conference in the United States. It was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It was 1976. They had this little tiny group of students from their group. They're real fond of the fact that they have the oldest LGBT group in the whole Southeast. So they got that cold over our heads all day. But this was their group. What happened is each year this conference happened between 1976 and 1995 that it moved, very similar to your conference, and moved all around the Southeast. But in 1978, and the reason this is important is that in 1978, this conference was held back in Chapel Hill, and a group of five people, three gay men and two lesbians, from Tuscaloosa, Birmingham, and Huntsville, raised the money, drove to Chapel Hill, and then went to this conference for two days. At that conference, they were able to bring back to Alabama the formation of the Gay and Lesbian Statewide Organization at a conference just like this. They sat in a room full of people, all fledgling groups at this point, even though Chapel Hill's group had been around the longest. They did best practices, they talked to each other, and those five people came back to Alabama with the idea of taking all of us out of the closet in 1980. What's really striking to me is the, the connection, that I've left Alabama to go to North Carolina to discover my own history in Alabama, which is a really fascinating thing. Um, they did this amazing publication, which the archives of this group actually don't exist in the South. They're actually in, um, they're in Maryland, which is not the South, I don't care what anybody says. Um, it just isn't the South. So. But this group did, I mean, again, very similar to what you're doing. It was all made by hand. It was, they ran this conference on like $75. They got everything donated. And the second year they had it, it was so big that the space that they had was overflowing with people. And they were able to empower student groups all across the Southeast to continue the work in their spaces. I discovered this while looking into the local history here when I was living in, North, in uh, Tuscaloosa. This is a screenshot of the welcome letter for the first LGBT statewide group. And I just listen to this language. Today's meeting is to be an informal, unstructured social gathering to lay the groundwork for a state convention. They wanted this, what you guys are doing right here. Below is a list of some items that need to be decided. Hopefully others will be added as the days continue. We urge you all to have a hamburger with us <laughs> later this afternoon. However, we do ask for $3. I mean, come on, that's a budget that you can work with right there, right? But this is what they wanted to do. And it's, to me, it's so interesting to see that when they were putting this together, their plan was always a statewide plan. This is what we did really well in the South, was we organized ourselves on the grassroots level to make sure these things were happening. Benny Nash was a very unassuming, very tiny man who had been living in the closet in Birmingham. He goes to this conference and gets empowered. He comes back, and they have the very first meeting of the very first statewide LGBT group meeting in Tuscaloosa, an apartment complex, by the way, that's still an apartment complex just up the street. They had it in the pool house because they could get it for free because he lived there. They put this together, and look at this. I love the little checkbox. Do you plan to attend? It's like a little note, right? But they wanted this moment, the moment that you are in right now. This is what they wanted. 
October 11th, 1980 in Tuscaloosa at one o'clock. They wanted to be in the same space together. So if you're at Troy or you're from South Alabama or you're from Huntsville, you all could sit in the same room and empower each other to do things better to empower each other to push past the barriers. And if you're facing a particular barrier on your campus, maybe they've already done it. And so how do you do this quicker? Because they can tell you. This is what cultural and historical memory looks like, sitting together in spaces and telling our narratives, because we never were allowed to tell those stories before this. When I found this, this actually I, this, it lives in my office currently. Um, but these documents mean more to me as a queer Southerner than just about anything I've ever picked up in the last 15 years of working on my history, because I, I am these people. Like, this is, this is my legacy. This is your legacy. And Benny is still a tiny little quiet man. He lives in Seattle, Washington. He retired there. When I called him, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not really super emotional as a rule, but I called him, and we're talking on the phone, and he, and he says to me, can I send you these things? And I said, send me everything. And so he puts in a little note, and I, he sent me the tiniest little note that was inside this envelope that said, for what it's worth, I'm glad that you're doing the work that we started. And I'm like in my office, just like weeping it out. I'm just like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I'm like trying not to cry on the originals. Like, I'm like, Let me make a copy. I don't need to be weeping directly on the originals. So this is a shirt from the very first LGBT um, group here at the University of Alabama, the Gay Student Union. And I brought you all a present. You can't actually keep it. It's going to the archives. But I got a mysterious package in the mail from someone who didn't put their name on it. And they sent me this, which is also going to your archive, from the second iteration of the LGBT group at Alabama. Isn't that awesome? It's pretty badass, right? And so these are the kinds of things that, if again, think about what it meant for the kids who were going to school here in 1982 to wear this shirt in 1984. Now, that's a big deal, walking around with their pride on their clothes. And this is a beautifully well-kept, if you've seen it, I love it, um, in the archives across the street. So... What does the rest of it look like? When I was talking to Christina, this is my friend Christina here in the front. When I was talking to her about doing this talk, I said, what, what do you think people need to hear? And she said, we need to hear what we can do. And so I want to give you a plan, if I can. I want to give you some homework to take out with you into the world. You can do what we've done in Charlotte. You absolutely can. Uh, we have, we're fortunate in Charlotte because the, all the wealthy gays have retired there. And so if I need money, I just walk over and just sort of like shake them. <laughs> until $100 bills fall out, and then I fund my projects with it. Um, so that might be a little, little challenging Alabama, but not impossible. Not impossible. A statewide history project for the preservation of Alabama LGBT history across the state can start in this room, if you guys want to do it. We've already started here in, in Tuscaloosa with a tiny little collection of our student group's history that exists across the street. But these can be done in your spaces. Intergenerational oral histories are so important. The, my one... I don't want to get all teary again when I think about it, but we, the, the man who was responsible for the, almost the beginning of everything queer that happened in Charlotte passed away at the end of October, exactly one week before we did his oral history. And so the loss of that is immeasurable to our community's history. I was telling Soapy when we were out having a, a chat in the parking lot that his, he left us everything in his estate. And so we have all of his stuff, and it is so beautifully organized that it makes it arguments to me need to be alone with a cigarette for five minutes, because it's beautiful. It's really gorgeous. But... Um, we lost that chance, and you guys have an opportunity to do that here, going out and finding who your local historical folk are and talking to them and recording their histories. We need to expand the collection here at UA, too, because the Tuscaloosa, Birmingham, Huntsville, Montgomery, 
sort of quad of our history is so important that, that those areas need to have their stuff pulled out so that we can, in fact, start looking for history in smaller places. History in Dothan and in Troy and these places that we're not thinking of as being places where we have queer history except that they exist. We need to be doing that. And then cooperative collection development. Because if you, what we have here is applicable to so much of what you're all doing in other places. You all need to know this stuff exists so that you can come and see it and let it inspire you because it inspires me all the time. And then what I want to do is what Benny Nash wanted to do, which is expand a sister campus program where you guys are accountable to each other. And so that we don't have to wait until today to talk to the cool kids who all came from South Alabama. Like you should be able to do that other comms. You're welcome. That was a little nod. Yeah. We all sitting so quietly together. I appreciate that. Um, we need to be doing this because it's really, really important. We need to be refocusing our grassroots efforts. We are in a, in fact, you don't mind me getting political for five seconds. Something scary is happening in Alabama. The intervention of national organizations, Sudden Interest and Southern Queers is scary, mostly because they have a lot of money and what they're doing is undermining local grassroots organizings by not working with us. It's scary. This happened in San Antonio, Texas. They opened up an HRC office in San Antonio, Texas. They walked in and they gave the woman who was responsible for running their community center triple her salary to work for them. And within a year, the center was almost close to closing. This has been replicated. It's being replicated in Alabama right now. The HRC just hired away the woman who was in charge of Southerners on New Ground in Birmingham, basically undermining local grassroots efforts. It's scary. And so that's happening in North Carolina as well. So we have to stop these things happening because if we don't, we're going to run out of everything that we needed. We need participation of queer youth voices in the national dialogue. I am, mostly because I've worked on college campuses, mostly because I'm the person I am, I hate the idea that your voice gets silenced until you get age appropriate enough to have an opinion. That really gets on my nerves. So much of what's happening with your experience we could learn from. And the intergenerational voice dialogue is important for you so that you can understand what your historical folks look like, but they need to hear from you as well. They are tired. I'll tell you this now, when talking to older activists, they are exhausted, and they need to see you as leaders. We said this in a, in a conference we had in Charlotte just last year. We invited students to help us plan and participate in as experts in our conference, and not as an afterthought. I had the audacity to say at a fundraiser for our local LGBT group, they'll never ask me back, by the way, but I stood at a podium and I said, we have gone from a community of at-risk homosexuals into a 14-letter acronym in less than 15 years. And we have to learn what those letters mean. Those letters are important to us. They're not just things on a sheet of paper. And this little, the group of wealthy gays who got the front table, the, I call them the Wells Fargo gays. They were all sitting at the table. And one of them rolled his eyes at me while I was talking. And so I just, I stopped because I can't help myself, put down my notes and said, listen, jackass. You're sitting right in front of me. I can see you. This kid over here who just desegregated their school's trans policy for the very first time in a hundred years, who got elected as homecoming king of his space by demanding access to gender-neutral bathrooms, is more important than you. And the whole place just lost its mind. Everybody was like, oh my god, I can't believe that. The Twitter's blowing up, Facebook's are blowing up. And of course the wealthy gays later, the criticism was that I was unprofessional. That was my criticism on the little piece of paper. You're unprofessional. Yeah, I'm unprofessional, asshole. <laughs> Shut up. Get out of my space. I hate that. We have to embrace our activist history. The, the ways in which you feel empowered through activism is, is broad. It's not just one thing. We have never been a community of single issues until the, tw in the late 20th century. This obsession with gay marriage has, 
has undercut the things that we have been able to do for decades in the South. Right? Seriously. Do you know what we were doing? We were working for workers' rights. We were working for women's health. We were working for the safety of trans-identified people. We have been doing this in the South. We just stopped doing it. We have to not stop doing that. We have to continue our work. That broad-spectrum activist approach is what makes our community so strong, that we are so diverse in our spaces. And we have to learn how to be kind to each other. We have forgotten what it means to have family. When I came out in 93 and told the very first person I was gay, and then later when I was 25 and told the first person I was queer, those conversations cemented something for me. But what I learned in the very first moment I came out was we called each other family. When we had conversations about each other, they would say, oh, you know, you know Stephen, he's family. The idea that we were in this together is so important. It's so important. It is a lesson that we haven't learned enough. So I wrote this last part down, so I remember how to say it exactly. So what lies next for the South and for Alabama? We are facing a crisis community here in 2015. With the abdication of our local agency to national organizations, we have lost not only our sense of ourselves, but we've internalized the fear that we have lost the ability to organize locally, except that we haven't. There are high school students in Birmingham organizing their GSAs. They're fighting back for the things they need. Radical AIDS activists in Atlanta are banding together in unlikely religious coalitions to make sure that people have access to health care. College students in South Carolina are forcing their schools to create queer curriculum in their college classrooms. Rural queers in Kentucky are creating new print and online publications to get word out about their events and their organizations. In North Carolina, a coalition of queer people of color and immigrants' rights groups are working with the NAACP to organize the most successful protests in North Carolina since the desegregation history of the 60s, and these are Moral Mondays. We're fighting for each other's things. Southerners on New Ground did a survey of queer people living all over the South for two years, asking them what they thought were the most important issues facing queer Southerners. The list shocked many people, but not many people living in the South. That list included economic justice, healthcare for trans people, racial inequality, and employment discrimination. Notice that marriage equality was not even in the top six of a top ten list. The South does have an agenda for itself, and we've been spending our money, forming our coalitions, and pushing back against forces that would limit us in order to see this come to life. We need our history. We need to harness it as the weapon that it is. We need it because we have believed something about ourselves that was never true. We have never been behind in the ways people imagined. We have never been powerless or weak. We come from a proud community of people that have been fighting and winning for decades. The success that we've experienced in North Carolina this year can and should be done in Alabama. When I stood in the Civil Rights Institute last year, staring at photos of working class men and women being arrested, getting hit with hoses, I knew in that moment that I was part of something proud and robust. That my identity as a queer southerner makes me strong and connects me to the work of generations of activists whose legacy we now pick up and move forward. Shake the hands of all the people you want who are getting married, but remind them that this is not the end of the movement. It is the beginning of the movement. Reject the notion that you are incomplete, that you need saving from some gay place in another part of this country. Reject the intervention of national organizations that do not understand your work. Embrace the complex, ugly, resilient, queer, past, present, and future of the South, and demand a place that you deserve to live in. A South where queer people, young and old, learn the lessons of power before we learn the lessons of fear. The antidote to the dilemma of queer life in the South is not more assimilation, but an understanding that we are the people that we need to be in this moment. And all that we need to flourish is to remember that the ground we were born into gave us life, 
and we thank it, and then now it's our turn to reshape the places where we live. Thank you.